Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I'm Congressman Jared Huffman, and this week we're going to talk about emoluments. And no, that is not some strange lotion. Uh, It's actually a word that appears in the Constitution numerous times, uh, but there's a specific clause in Article 1, which discusses, of course, Congress's authority. And uh, the emoluments clause turns out to be a really important thing under the Trump presidency. Uh, and there's no better person to talk about that than uh, Brianne Gorod, who is the uh, general or the chief counsel with the Constitutional Accountability Center. She also happens to be my lawyer because I am one of what, Brianne, over 200 over members 200 of Congress? Over 200 members of Congress, that's right. I think, I think we're at 215 now. Right. So I am a co-plaintiff with all of these other folks in a lawsuit against uh, the 45th president, under the emoluments clause. We'll talk a little more about that in a moment. But uh, to get us all started, uh, Brianne, I wonder if you could just explain what this emoluments clause is all about. Yeah, so the foreign emoluments clause says that any person holding an office of profit or trust in the United States, so that includes the president, shall not accept without the consent of Congress any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. And what that basically means is that our nation's leaders can't accept foreign governments, foreign government benefits or rewards unless Congress first gives its affirmative consent. And this is incredibly important. You know, when the founders drafted our Constitution, they were deeply, deeply worried about corruption. They were deeply worried about foreign influence. They worried that foreign governments might give our nation's leaders benefits and rewards in an effort to undermine their loyalty. And that's why they included the Foreign Emoluments Clause in the Constitution. And that's why they give Congress an incredibly important role in determining what benefits from foreign governments our nation's leaders could accept. For those of you following along in your pocket constitution, this is Article 1, Section 9 uh, that we're talking about here. And, and Brian, what you've just described really sounds like a fundamental anti-corruption provision. In the, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's absolutely right. This was definitely the preeminent bulwark against the foreign corruption of our nation's leaders. And, you know, again, the founders were so concerned about corruption, so concerned about the possibility of foreign influence. It was something that they discussed at length as they were debating the Constitution and, how to, and trying to decide how best to guard against the corruption of our nation's leaders. Okay, and now the word emolument, still something that a lot of people uh, kind of scrunch up their, uh, <laughs> their eyes and uh, shake their heads when they hear it, but uh, it's well understood. The meaning of this term, when you look at the the constitutional history and the developed case law thereafter, the, the lawyers understand what an emolument is, right? That's right. And when you look at the way the framers used the term emolument, the way others used it at the time the Constitution was drafted, it was an incredibly broad term. It referred to any profit or benefit or advantage. There are folks who have really studied this at length and looked at its usage um, around the time of the framing. And, and it was a broad word, and the framers chose it for that reason. They chose it because they wanted the Foreign Emoluments Clause to be this really broad prophylactic protection against corruption. So that's why they used a broad word like emolument. That's why they prohibited 
uh, leaders from accepting any present, emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, unless they could first convince a majority of the members of Congress to give their consent. Right. Let's talk about that piece for a minute, because this is housed within Article 1. That's my section of the Constitution. <laughs> That's the piece I care about, because it says what my authority is. That's right. And it makes very, very clear that I have the authority to either consent or withhold that consent for anyone who's in a position of trust in the federal government who is offered an emolument. How, how, does the, how do the mechanics of that work? Yeah, I mean, this was an incredibly important part of the clause. You know, the framers thought that if our nation's leaders had to first come to Congress and convince a majority of the members of Congress to give their consent, that would ensure accountability and transparency that would help address the corruption concerns that gave rise to the clause in the first place. And for hundreds of years now, the way that the clause works has been widely understood. If a, an official wants to accept a benefit from a foreign government, um, they can send a letter to Congress. We have examples of President Lincoln doing this, President Harrison doing this, mm -hmm. President Jackson doing this when foreign governments um, wanted to give them benefits. And if Congress wants to consent, it can pass a private bill or resolution to give that consent. But if Congress doesn't want to consent, it can do absolutely nothing. And that's incredibly important. The framers really wanted to put the burden on those who wanted to accept government benefits um, to convince members of Congress to give their consent. If they couldn't convince member, the majority of the members of both houses of Congress to do that, then they couldn't accept the emolument, they couldn't accept the present. It was a flat prohibition. Have emoluments been rejected by Congress uh, in the past? Emoluments have been rejected. Congress has given directions about what to do with emoluments, saying, you know, these, these uh, rewards or these benefits should be deposited in the Department of State, for example. And you know the other thing that um, officials have done um, when there's been question about whether something was an emolument is they can go to the Department of Justice and ask its Office of Legal Counsel, is this an emolument? Is this something that's covered by the clause? And once the once something you conclude that something is an emolument, then again the the clause is clear. You have to get Congress's consent before you can accept it. And it's worth noting. This you know, doesn't just apply to the president. It applies to um, a, a whole number of individuals who serve in the federal government. And the practice has been consistent over time that you know, even individuals who want to accept $150 for reviewing a PhD thesis um, have to get consent before they can accept that benefit from foreign government. All right, you mentioned the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. This would be a good time for me to make sure our listeners know that your resume includes more than just being my lawyer. Uh, you actually uh, have an incredible pedigree here, uh, Yale Law School. And uh, you were at the Department of Justice. In fact, you were an attorney advisor at the Office of Legal Counsel. Right. So you have some knowledge about uh, this thing we're talking about. That's right. I mean, that's an office that loves dealing with all kinds of constitutional questions, including ones that you know most people may not think about much of the time. But even though most people may not have thought about emoluments before President Trump came to office and made this a huge political and huge issue of great importance to the nation, the Office of Legal Counsel has been considering questions about emoluments you know, repeatedly over the years. So, Brianne, um, why uh, is this such a concern under the, under the presidency of Donald J. Trump? Yeah, well, you know, it's such a concern because the president has decided to maintain his ownership interests in his vast business empire. And we know that through his businesses, he is accepting foreign government benefits. He's accepting intellectual property rights from China and from other countries. Um, foreign diplomats are staying at his hotels, in fact, talking about how they're going to go stay at his hotel so they can yeah. tell the president, ah, I really enjoyed staying at her, your hotel. Foreign governments are making payments on um, uh, his commercial and residential towers in New York and in San Francisco. And really, the benefits that we happen to have heard about through investigative reporting you know, are only the tip of the iceberg. Because the president's insisting on accepting these benefits in secret because he's not coming to Congress, 
and disclosing the benefits he wants to accept and, and asking for Congress' consent, um, we don't know the full extent of the benefits that he's accepting from foreign governments. And that's, that's a really um, a scary thing because it means that every time he makes a national security decision or a foreign policy decision, we can't know whether he's acting in what he believes to be the national interest or in his personal financial self-interest. Well, and, and there are enough red flags to think that every foreign government that deals with the United States understands that uh, pleasing the Trump business interests uh, is a great way to uh, to get in the good graces of this. The, the, the call, for example, with the Ukrainian President Zelensky doesn't get, doesn't get talked about much, yep. but almost in passing, President Zelensky brags about staying at the Trump Hotel when he was in Washington. Absolutely. And, you know, there was in, in the lawsuit, um, which you are a plaintiff and we um, represent you, there were a number of friend of the court briefs that were filed in the D.C. Circuit a few weeks ago. One of those was on behalf of national security experts um, talking about how just how dangerous it is, dangerous it is to have a president who is brazenly violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Because, you know, again, we want to make sure that when incredibly important, um, incredibly consequential foreign policy and national security decisions are being made, that they're being made um, with undivided loyalty, which is the national interest um, in mind. Okay, so we talked about how it's supposed to work. If a president is offered an emolument or a thing of value, they're supposed to come to Congress and ask if they can have permission to accept it. Um, I'm pretty sure that that has not happened. I think I would know <laughs> as a member of Congress, and I'm, I'm positive that Donald Trump has not asked for my consent for any of the value he's received from all these different foreign governments. So what do you do about it? Yeah. So uh, what you do about it is you sue. You go to court and say um, the Foreign Emoluments Clause is an incredibly important provision. Um, the president is in violation of it because he is accepting these benefits from foreign governments and he has not obtained Congress's consent. And, you know, this lawsuit is so important because it's about the Foreign Emoluments Clause and it's also about the larger principle that no one, including the president, is above the law. That principle is getting a, a lot of attention <laughs> these days. Uh, and we, we may talk about how this connects to the broader uh, context of, of the impeachment proceeding in a moment. But um, I just for, for the lawyers on this uh, podcast who may be walking out with us, uh, there is no express right of action in the Constitution. It doesn't say if the president refuses to ask consent of Congress, Congress can go sue him in federal court. Uh, where do we get that that standing, that right of action that has led us to this point where we're uh, engaging you as our lawyer and we're, we're doing battle in court. Yeah, so members of Congress have standing to sue the president for this violation because of that explicit role that the Foreign Emoluments Clause assigns Congress, that the president cannot accept these benefits without the consent of Congress, because there is um, significant precedent that, in, that tells us that when members of Congress are denied a specific right that they explicitly hold under the Constitution when they're denied um, a voting opportunity that they're entitled to, that that denial um, gives them a right to sue. All right, so we've clearly got standing under Article 1, Section 9, and you're saying we've got an implied right of action to take our grievance to court with the president. Um, so we decided to do that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how this case came together. Sure, that's right. So, you know, um, we are excited to represent you and your colleagues, you know, I think all of whom, you know, wanted to vindicate this important principle that, you know, the president is not above the law and to make sure that the Foreign Emoluments Clause um, is uh, enforced, to make sure that he complies with the Foreign Emoluments Clause because of how important that clause 
um, is in our system of government. And so um, we filed suit. And uh, before before we get into yeah. that, do you want to take a moment to tell us about the Constitutional Accountability Center? Sure, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, so we're a, a nonprofit law firm, think tank, and action center dedicated to progressive promise of the Constitution's text and history. And so this is really a perfect case for us to litigate with all of you because what this case is about is constitutional text and history. It's right there, as you've been saying in Article One. Um, it's clear in the text and the history. You know, really supports what the text says. Again, the framers were deeply concerned about corruption. Um, they were deeply concerned about foreign influence, and that's why they included this broad prophylactic protection um, in the Constitution. All right, so we rounded up uh, a couple hundred members of that's Congress right. as that's plaintiffs. Right. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's the largest uh, largest suit in history in terms of the number of members who came together um, to try to hold the president accountable to the Constitution. All right, and what are our specific causes of action under your complaint? Yeah, so I mean, what we're basically asking for is that the court um, enter an injunction, basically require the president to comply with the clause, to stop accepting these benefits from foreign governments um, unless he first obtains the consent of the Congress. And you know what his lawyers, the Department of Justice, have been trying to do is stop that. And so they've been making you know a number of arguments. They've been questioning whether members of Congress have standing. They've been questioning whether the president is even violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause at all, putting forth this really, really narrow, um, crabbed understanding of what the Foreign Emoluments Clause means and what it prescribes. And so, so let's break that down yeah. if we could. So first stop, district court. Uh, we've got our complaint, and they brought a motion to dismiss. They brought a motion to dismiss, uh, bringing these sorts of arguments. And we had all argument first uh, in June of 2018 in front of Judge Sullivan in the D.C. District Court, um, focusing purely on this standing question, all right. um, whether members of Congress have standing to sue um, because they've been denied this voting opportunity they're explicitly entitled to under the Constitution. And so we had, it was roughly a two-hour argument. Um, Judge Sullivan had lots of really great questions um, that he asked me, that he asked the attorneys for the Department of Justice. Um, and then later that year, he issued an opinion um, recognizing that you and your colleagues do have standing to sue the president. Uh, fast forward a few months, he then issues another opinion um, recognizing that the plaintiffs have what's called stated a claim that the president is violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause, basically recognizing what we've been talking about here, that the emolument, the word emolument, is a very broad word, and okay. that the president um, accepts benefits from foreign governments of the kind that he's been accepting, um, that that would violate the clause um, if we can prove those allegations. And in the complaint, we made clear that, that these hotel visits and other things are what we are talking about in this case, and the court acknowledge that as a valid emolument that's under, right. under the Constitution. That's right. That's okay, right. so those are two pretty important rulings that that's we right. that we got at the district court level. Did they try to knock us out uh, under any other theories? Uh? So basically they raised a host of kind of other um, jurisdictional threshold issues like cause of action. They argued the president, you can't sue to enjoin the president. Um, and the district court rejected all of those arguments as well. But they've you know, certainly um, been trying to come up with every argument they can to keep this out of court. And Judge Sullivan in those two opinions, you know, really thoughtfully and thoroughly discussed each of them and rejected all of the arguments um, that was made in the in the president's motion to dismiss. One of the things we sometimes have heard the president and his defenders say is that as long as he's charging market value that you know, he's reading this market value uh, uh, limitation into the Emoluments Clause. Has the court uh, considered that? Um, you know, it really focused on kind of the breadth of the term emolument. And I think, you know, as, as your question implied, there's just no fair market value exception in the Constitution. That's not the way the clause has ever been interpreted. And, you know, the president hasn't offered either in his filings here or, or anywhere else any reason to think that the framers would have limited it in that way, given what they were trying to accomplish when they put this broad prohibition in the Constitution. Okay, so we got these rulings at the district court level. Um, 
why aren't we off to the races doing discovery and getting his tax returns and all this other fun stuff that we would like to do? We started. We actually served yeah. a number of subpoenas um, on Trump businesses. Um, but the Department of Justice, of course, does not want this case to go forward and does not want discovery to commence. Um, so they asked the court to allow for an immediate appeal. Normally when a motion to dismiss is denied, you don't get to go to the Court of Appeals yet. You have to wait till later in the case. Um, but they asked the district court um, if there could be an immediate appeal. And there's a, a few kind of a, a somewhat longer procedural history there. Um, but ultimately the district court agreed that, you know, given that these are pretty significant issues, you know, they haven't been litigated before, you know, largely because past presidents have complied with the clause, yeah. um, that it made sense to go ahead and have an immediate appeal. And so that's where we are now is we're in the DC circuit, the Court of Appeals above the DC district court. Um, and um, we are, have just finished briefing in the case. So DOJ filed a brief, we mm -hmm. filed a brief. As I mentioned, there were a number of friend of the court briefs that were filed by national security experts, um, bipartisan former members of Congress, law professors, former government ethics officials, really addressing all of the issues that the district court- um, Same issues, mainly about standing exactly. and, and justice exactly. ability, et cetera. That's right, exactly. Um, and we are looking to oral argument. There'll be oral, I mean, oral argument in the DC circuit on December 9th. Okay. And in the meantime, no discovery. We no discovery. So that's all been put on pause until we get a ruling from the DC circuit. But one thing um, that's very good is the DC circuit, when it agreed to hear the appeal, put in place an expedited briefing schedule. So what that means is, you know, we're they said, we're going to brief this as quickly as we can and hold oral argument as quickly as we can, um, which is why we're having oral argument just next month. And so I think they recognize that this is something that really needs to be resolved as quickly as possible. The clock is ticking. So um, December 9th argument, when, when do you think we might reasonably hear from the DC circuit? You know, my hope is that we will hear from them, you know, potentially later this year, or if not later this year, then early next year, because, you know, right. we're hopeful that we will get a good result from the DC circuit, and then we're going to be back in the district court and starting that discovery yeah. so that we can get this case resolved, because it is incredibly important. T talk about some of the discovery that you'd like to get rolling with in this case. <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to put the cart too far ahead of the horse, but, you know, certainly what we do in discovery is, you know, try to get the information that we need to prove the allegations in the complaint. And, you know, there's obviously a lot that we know from public reporting. The Trump Organization itself has acknowledged that it's accepting benefits from foreign governments. That's why it's been making these donations to the U.S. Treasury. Um, but you know, we don't again know the full scope of the benefits the president has been accepting. So you know, I think when we get back to that stage, we'll you have to figure out what more we need in order to make sure that we can get an order from the court recognizing the president is violating the clause and ordering him to stop doing so. Okay, so let's assume we get a good ruling at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, obviously, uh, they would immediately appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, we would probably continue to be unable to conduct discovery until that would be resolved. Is that fair to? I mean, assume? they you know have to ask the Supreme Court to issue a stay, a stay. Um, you know, which is something we've you know certainly seen in other cases. So I think it's possible they would do that. If they did, you know, we would again want really expedited briefing so that we could get this all resolved and be able to get back to the district court. Okay, so this. Uh, potentially gets into a long line of uh, appeals on their way to the United States Supreme Court. It's, it's a busy on year. This, uh, on this issue that you referred to a moment ago, whether Donald Trump is above the law. Yeah. In this case, above Article 1, Section 9 of the, the Constitution and the, the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's assume that it all goes really well and he's still president by the time we have final closure on all this and we can uh, get our discovery completed. Um, what is the remedy at the end of the day in this case? 
Well, I mean, what we want is an order from the court, you know, saying the president is violating the clause. I mean, that's an important principle mm -hmm. to establish, given that he's, you know, contesting that. And an order saying that he has to stop unless he can convince a majority of the members of Congress to give their consent. And so... So just stopping after he said four years of, uh, of being lavished with, uh, with foreign emoluments isn't much of a deterrent. Is it possible to disgorge the profits he might have gained during that period? You know, that might be a question for the district court. You know, I think our, our first priority is getting an order making him stop, okay. um, you know, either stop accepting these benefits or go to Congress and, you know, convince you and your colleagues to give your consent. Um, and I think that would, you know, really vindicate this important principle that the president isn't above the law. Yeah. There's so many things with this president uh, that make me think we, we're going to have to codify some things that we never used to imagine. Yeah. Uh, and one of those might be uh, we need a faster way of dealing with a president who refuses to comply with the Emoluments Clause. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you know, this president obviously is unprecedented in so many ways and, you know, seems to suggest in so many respects that the normal rules don't apply to him. And so, I, you know, one hope is that as we move forward, you know, we establish clearly what the rules are, that they do apply to the president. Um, but I do think there's going to be a lot of thought going forward about how we deal with, with a situation like this. Yeah. All right, now, uh, this is happening in the broader context of uh, an impeachment proceeding. Yeah. In fact, we're, we're here in my congressional office, and I have it on mute, but the television right now uh, has Ambassador Volker testifying in response to Republican counsel, and the whole nation is riveted, uh, and this is, this is kind of a big deal. Yeah. What are your thoughts about how this uh, kind of plays into the broader accountability moment that we're facing here? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, thinking back to the Constitution and why the framers included the impeachment clause in the Constitution, you know, they were deeply, deeply worried about abuses of the public trust. You know, they were worried that our nation's leaders could use the powers of their office, particularly the president. You know, when they created the Constitution, they created this strong executive branch with a, a single president, and they thought that was important. But they realized that with great powers, you know, comes the possibility for great abuses. And that's why the Constitution is full of checks and balances, full of checks on corruption. At full checks on corruption and the you know ultimate check is the ability for the people's representatives to impeach and remove someone from office who is using that office um, for personal gain and you know what we sadly are learning through these hearings and have been learning um, you know in a number of different contexts is that this president um, you know seems willing to abuse the official powers of his office in order to benefit himself personally and that's you know exactly what the framers were worried about and again why they included the impeachment clause in the Constitution. Well, that's great. Uh, well, I'm so glad that uh, you're sharing your expertise with us here on my podcast. I'm glad that my lawsuit is in such great legal hands. You're just winning. I mean, I'm not sick of all this winning. Are you? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so uh, please keep it up. Good luck on December 9th. Thank you. And, and all the way up to the Supremes where this is likely heading. Um, and thanks for making good history with us. I think this is really important. And, and I, I think that... I think we will find a way to hold Donald Trump accountable, and I think future generations will thank us for doing it. I think so. Thank you for your leadership in the suit, and more generally, um, we're really proud to be working on this with you. Great. Thanks, Brianna. Thank you. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.